0: Welcome back to Reality Asserts Itself. I'm Paul Jay. We're continuing our discussion with Ambassador Joe Wilson. Uh, Ambassador, in the end of our last segment, I asked you whether you think it was possible that a Dick Cheney would knowingly allow deaths of American citizens, 9-11, to happen. And your answer was not that you were convinced that he had, although you think it's a legitimate discussion. But that 15 years earlier you would have said you wouldn't believe it, but now you could.
1: Yeah, I think that's um, that's a fair assessment. I think um, I think like most Americans who who uh, who um, saw 9/11 happen couldn't believe that that the government had any advanced knowledge of it um, or was in any way implicated. And, and I have to say, 15 years later, I'm, I'm not... I, I, I'm, I still can't quite take you there. I can't tell you that, yes, Cheney knew, but I, I, also, um, I also can't say with the same level of confidence that my government would never do that knowingly um and that's really that's really uh, Cheney Cheney and Bush and and that crowd and and um and of course now we see their uh their offspring in the Trump administration so now i i i'm not sure what we can believe anymore from when pence from was government. asked
0: who do you want to model your vice presidency after he said dick cheney
1: yeah yes
0: um Well, go back to your childhood, Mm -hmm. because you grew up in a family that never would have thought much of what you've witnessed was possible. Um, You write in your book about your grandfather was called the colonel, and you grew up in a family where military tradition was very strong, very much during the Cold War and the, uh, the amount of propaganda about it, the America, the defender of freedom and light, and the horrible Soviets who were the devil. and You go from growing up in that kind of household and culture to someone who you write in your book, you write, when in 1967 Muhammad Ali declared that he had nothing against the Viet Cong, it made sense to me and my friends even as it sent chills down the spines of our parents. Further down, you write, we did not trust the government to tell us the truth and the credibility gap. Epitomizing the gulf between the official pronouncements versus truth on the ground in Vietnam pitted parents against kids in my family, just as it did in many other households around the country. How do you get from your childhood, where I would assume America would not do such things. You would believe, for someone who sees well, this. Well,
1: my my family wasn't quite as rigid as you might might portray them. My dad, uh, my dad was the last Marine pilot to fly off of the uh, of the USS Franklin before it got hit by a Japanese bomber. So he flew these uh, Corsairs off of aircraft carriers, um, and and he grew up in a generation where if your government said to do something you saluted and did it but we grew up and we lived in Europe when I was going to high school so we were exposed to a lot of different cultures and a lot of different thinking and I give my parents enormous credit for that now when Vietnam happened there was this uh, yeah there was the you gotta salute and and do your job and and I'm um, I went to university in 67 and we were the class that, that really sort of was that break between those who saluted and went off to war and those who instead went off to Chicago to, to riot in the streets and who, in our case, in Santa Barbara, burned the Bank of America and have protests and everything. Did
0: you join protests?
1: Yeah, I was, I, I was not a protest leader, but I, I walked through the bank... Um, uh, before I got lit up for the last time um, and I was just talking to an old friend of mine. We walked through it together and we were in the middle of the bank and all these kids are trying to light up these curtains, putting furniture in the middle of the of the building and trying to light that up and long distance calls to their parents and everything and, and we took a look at it and said, hmm, this might not be the best place for us to be tonight. so. So, I, I, I didn't take a bullet for the protest, but I was there. And we did a lot at UCSB in those years. We, um, we beat back the oil companies on, on offshore drilling after, they, uh, after one of the derricks blew. Um, we started the first black studies um, uh, um, program, I think, in the country at that time. We started, I think, one of the first Chicano studies programs. Mm one of the first environmental, So our school was really very active. So
0: growing up in such a patriotic household and the, your parents instincts are, you know, your government, you're loyal to your government, your government's gone to war. You should be loyal to it. And you come to understand how much of the Vietnam war was based on lies, uh, from the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which was the, you know, people who use the term false flag, to the completely concocted casualty numbers and uh, so on. I think it was as simple as the quote you used earlier. I got nothing
1: against those Viet Cong. It was as simple as Muhammad Ali said it
0: was. I got nothing against those Viet So why do you then join a foreign service for a country that does the Vietnam War? Listen, I, I love
1: my country. I think we've done much more good than harm. And I think we've, we've, um, we've, um, and I think also if you want to change things, you've got to be part of it. As Lyndon Johnson uh, uh, used to say about his political opponents, he'd much rather have them inside the tent pissing out than outside the tent pissing in. And if you really wanted to get change, you had to get inside the tent. You just had to be part of the tent, you had to be inside. And, and plus, it was yeah, it was a it was a great way to see the world. It was a great adventure, um, and and um, and we did a lot of good. We did a lot of good. I'm I'm not ashamed of uh, I'm not ashamed of my country. I'm not ashamed of of our stewardship of the international um, uh, system since World War II. Um, have there been a lot of mistakes? Oh yeah, sure. Uh, were we the only ones to make mistakes? Nah. Um, could we have done better? Sure. And I think again, as as uh, the Gulf War, um, the Gulf War was a case of Saddam Hussein violating international law in in uh, invading and overthrowing um, a sovereign of a neighboring state. Um, we handled uh, what was then um, a kinetic but not existential threat to our national security uh, in the aftermath of the Cold War in a way that I think was absolutely exemplary. Uh, We went to the UN. We worked very, very hard with our friends. We worked very hard with those uh, that we had been rivals with for 50 years, with the Russians. Um, People don't know this, but there were... Uh, thousands of Russians in southern Iraq. They were building uh, power plants for the Iraqis, and they were at real th- risk um, if there if there was an outbreak of, of violence. Um, um, they would have been right in the middle of, of the fighting, um, and you know their government was as concerned about them as we were about about our citizens, um, and we worked very very closely together. Even though our relationships were new rather fragile, um, but we, um, I think we forged a, um, a sort of post-Cold War era that I wish it had,
0: had held up. You used the phrase just a couple of minutes ago, it wasn't an, ex, it wasn't an imminent threat or existential threat, yes. it was an indirect threat. But then if it's not an imminent threat, why go to war? No, it was, it was not an existential threat.
1: Um, but what it was, it was a, uh, an, a crisis of international proportions that needed to be managed. And it had to be managed from the outside. And the system to manage it was the system that we used, was, was the United Nations and everything that the, that, that the legitimacy of the UN system brings to bear on a, on a crisis like that. We went there, we got 12 different resolutions including a use of um, all appropriate means to expel him from Kuwait. Our mission was very, very limited. It was not to go to Baghdad to overthrow Saddam. It was to expel him from Kuwait. We stopped at the border. Um, Again, there were some things that were were probably
0: not done very well. There's a lot of controversy about the American ambassadors meeting with Saddam before the uh, Iraqi invasion in Kuwait. The Iraqis released a transcript later, which suggested that uh, the way she spoke sounded like it could have been a green light, that the Americans wouldn't really oppose an invasion of Kuwait, that there was some understanding. The Kuwaitis at a time were overproducing oil. The oil had gone down to 10 bucks a barrel. Uh, Iraq had tremendous debts from the uh, Iraq-Iran war. And they were apparently doing this drilling, which I- th- Slant drilling. Slant drilling yeah. into uh, Iraqi oil fields. And in your book, you said that was never what she planned. Intent- there was no intent on her part to give the Iraqis the idea that- And it was that's not line. the message they took from that meeting. But, but you do have a paragraph in the book which says, neither her nor a letter that came from President Bush nor you ever said- if you invade, there's going to be a military response, and you better not do it. Um, why, why not? Why wasn't there? Well, why wasn't it said?
1: Quite simply, we didn't have a mutual defense pact with Kuwait. There was no legal rationale for us to for us to react unilaterally in the event of an Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. And so, what she said um, in her meeting was to repeat what not just U.S. but what sort of international consensus talking points have been since these Arab borders were drawn by Gertrude Bell in the, in the 20s. And that is that we don't take a, a position on your border dispute with your neighbor other than to encourage you in the strongest possible terms to uh, solve it peacefully. And at the same time, all the neighbors in the, in, the, uh, in the Gulf region at that time were advising us to go very slowly. Do
0: not, do not provoke Saddam. So why not sanctions? Why not? I mean, so he's occupied. He's broken international law clearly. Invaded a sovereign country, overthrown its leadership clearly. But why does the response have to be war? Because you're someone who has advocated. You know, this shouldn't be the first response, and it wasn't. Because there were people at the time, including military. Uh, leaders who were saying, you know, give sanctions a try here. You don't have to go to war right away cuz something like 200,000 Iraqis die in this war. We we look,
1: we, we had sanctions up the wazoo on the Iraqis from then from from uh, during the entire period. We went back to the UN a dozen times. We had all the sanctions in the world we could we could put on the Iraqis. We went back to the UN, we developed an international consensus and it was really it was really um, based on uh, uh, making the U.N. charter um, uh, a valid um, uh, a valid document and making the U.N. a valid institution. So we got all the all the um, everything we needed. And remember, the war was very limited. It stopped at the border's edge. Uh, we went just as far as as the border. We didn't go any further. So it was totally um, in fact, one of the things that it gave us a, enormous credibility uh, was that we did, we, we, uh, we lived up to the limited mission we said we were going to do. And the Arabs at the time, they were what they were most concerned about was that what we were really plotting was an overthrow of a regime that we found to be unfriendly and not to our liking. And so when we stopped at the border, um, we were able then to bring the Arabs and the Israelis to Madrid and then to Oslo because we had enormous credibility. We did what we
0: said we were going to do, and we didn't do anything more than that. When Congress was going to vote on this, uh, there was this dramatic story. It turned out that Kuwait had hired, I think, for $11 million, Hills and Knowlton, to do PR for them. And one of this was these stories of this young nurse uh, talked about Iraqi soldiers coming into a, an Iraqi uh, hospital and taking infants out of incubators and throwing them on the floor. And it turned out, although, and this helped sway Congress in their vote, and it turned out she was the daughter of the Kuwaiti ambassador to the United States and wasn't even in Kuwait at the time, and the whole story was a crock. While I was there, I saw the Iraqi soldiers g- coming to the hospital with guns. They took the babies out of incubators. Took the incubators and left the children to die on the cold floor. Uh, doesn't that concern you that so a lot of this decision was made based on a, a fabrication? That's not. That's not what what the. I'm talking congressional vote.
1: No, that didn't decide the congressional vote. That that was not it. It was the. It was the body of evidence, and it was the. Uh, it was. Um, It was the persuasiveness of the argument we were able to make, and that was a very, very small part of it. Uh, Well, one of my many jobs, I was a Congressional Fellow up on the Hill, and I worked for Tom Foley when he was uh, Majority Whip, and I worked with Al Gore when he was Senator from Tennessee, and Al was one of those who sided with the President. And when you get a chance to talk to him, he will tell you that um, he was the one senior Democrat who was right on both the first Gulf War and on the Iraq War. He, he stood with the president on the Gulf War and against President Bush on the Iraq War. And the last person he talked to before he came to his decision, in each case was me. So um, I'm really pretty familiar with how that debate went down and, um, and how people lined up on it. Um, and, you know, the baby story out of Kuwait was, um, was background noise, but it wasn't decisive.
0: What you distinguished between the first Iraq war and second was this issue of, one, there was a UN resolution, and two, the United States kept within the resolution and didn't move on to Baghdad and overthrow Saddam. <clears throat>
1: well, more to the point that, 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 um, that we did the Gulf War— collectively as a world. Um, The the countries we had in our coalition were as diverse as Muslim countries from Africa, like Niger, um, to, you know, the European countries. Um, The second Gulf War, it was us and the Brits and anybody else we'd sort of dragoon into the effort. The second war was us acting unilaterally there was no basis. There was no basis legally, morally, or in any other way for us to take the actions we did. Whereas the Gulf War was a way of trying to establish um, uh, international order in the post-Cold War era as you deal with these sorts of regional conflicts um, that are best dealt with collectively because they don't pose
0: uh, an existential threat to one particular country that, like, like us. One of the criticisms of the uh, UN and its allies' uh, intervention in Kuwait, although it's an invited intervention by what was the Kuwaiti government, uh, was that they went beyond the UN resolution, that there was a massive bombing campaign in Iraq, uh, particularly there was a big bombing campaign of Iraqi infrastructure. Uh, perhaps 200,000 Iraqis died in the war. That's certainly one of the uh, numbers that have been seems to be uh, validated. Uh, Do you think, however, the process got there that was multilateral and was done under the auspices of the UN? But did the war itself go beyond that?
1: Um, Well, first of all, um, there was no American invasion. There was an American counter. uh, There was an Allied counterattack to the Iraqi invasion of a sovereign neighbor and once you go to war, all bets are off. Um, You go to war to win. Now, I cried um, when I saw the bombing of Baghdad, the shock and awe uh, of it, and uh, and what they did. um, Aside from the fact I really liked that they took down the billing department of the telephone company because we'd run up you know, hundreds of thousands of telephone bills, talking to families, and having our hostages talk to their families in the states. But, but it's if you're not going to um, if you're not going to take heed of the twelve resolutions that were passed by the United Nations, you just simply can't expect that this is going to be tiddlywinks um, uh, somewhere in the desert south of Basra. Uh, This was a military action. It had an objective. The objective was to get Saddam uh, to leave uh, Kuwait. Uh, We gave him every opportunity to leave peacefully. Um, I was a part of the... um, uh, When I got back from Baghdad, I did some bomb bomb damage assessments in the basement of the Pentagon. I was not privy to the... uh, to the strategy they employed other than that we had given them uh, the strategic sites that all our hostages have been placed in around the country but made no mistake about it war is not is not beanbag and if you're prepared to take on the, the 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 allied forces that we had compiled and put into the theater then
0: you really don't understand what's going on I'm no military expert, but the critique was that Amer- the allied forces led by the United States and an American general um, ha- had all the wherewithal to push the American troops out of Kuwait and didn't have to do this big bombing campaign, especially against civilian infrastructure, and that much of the strategic objective became weaken Saddam, not just push them out of Kuwait. Well, again. Um-
1: the processing of the military action was in the hands of the generals. Um, and they did it the way they thought best to do so.
0: Why do you write in your book, once the war started, that you were felt confused? Oh, I hated
1: it. Are you kidding? I lived cheek by jowl with the Iraqis for three years. When I was charge, I would drive around the city without any security, but I, I was able to sort of meet with the Iraqis at the rug market and the copper market. They were as scared as anybody else was about what was going to happen to them. So yeah, the confusion came from, man, we really wanted them to get out of, out of Kuwait peacefully. And to a certain extent, it was, uh, it was um, a sense of profound failure. Diplomacy had failed. I had failed and people I knew were going to
0: die. And oh, it was, uh, you know, how could you not be confused by it? If the fundamental issue for the United States for U.S. policy, and I'm not saying you, but U.S. policy, was upholding international law, this was not a government that was very good at following international law. Which government? The American. We S- were better than Saddam. If that's the criteria, Look, Uh, if if Saddam Hussein's uh, behavior—and frankly,
1: look, this is not an exercise in bashing the U.S. government during this particular um, international management crisis—but what I'm
0: saying is, they—if you take under his under H.W. Bush's watch, uh, the ousting of Noriega in Panama, as horrendous as Noriega was, that was clearly a violation of international law.
1: Again. You can say anything you want about these trashy little wars that the U.S. government has gotten involved in. The the Gulf War was an exercise in how one manages an international crisis in a post-Cold War period when you are gathering together allies and you're doing it under the auspices of the United Nations. That's not to excuse all the screw-ups that may have happened and all the arrogance of US administrations in the past, but make no mistake about this. This was was an exercise that should have been the way that we conducted ourselves and the way that we gathered um, the international community in the face of these sorts of international Um, crises and these international military actions going forward. Which was
0: not the case in the second War. And
1: my great regret is those lessons were all lost between the first Gulf War, the
0: Gulf War, and the Iraq War. Okay, we're going to continue our discussions with Ambassador Joe Wilson on Reality Asserts Itself.